Good morning and welcome to A Priest and a Rabbi uh, with uh, Manus the Rabbi this morning. It is, uh, it is great that we have the ability to bring in uh, amazing guests. Uh, I am so thrilled today to be able to welcome Rabbi Melissa Zalkin-Stolman, uh, who actually comes to us. Uh, we didn't have to fly her in from Zoom Airlines, um, that she is local. She is here. She lives in Parkland. Uh, she is here. She's a native of Florida, native of Miami, um, went to college here, uh, and she just does great work for the Union for Reform Judaism and through many of... Um, Many of her things that she has done throughout a course and a lifetime of commitment to Jewish activity. Uh, I, am, I am super thrilled to be able to, to welcome her. She's a friend. She's uh, a colleague. Uh, she also was, um, uh, at some point, she was my director uh, when it came to a educational program at HUC, uh, which was fabulous. Um, so it is with great pleasure this morning that uh, we welcome Rabbi Melissa Stolman. So uh, Rabbi Melissa, welcome. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm really honored. Absolutely. So we are we are beyond thrilled to be able to have you. And uh, may this be the beginning of many of uh, of future conversations with you. But we're going to look at um, at the institutions and those of our movement and beyond. Um, how is the situation that we find ourselves in? How has it been impacted? Uh, are people giving less? Are people giving more? Um, and what are the challenges and the stresses within the Jewish world of to maintain uh, continuity and certainly the continuation of uh, great programming and the inspiration to be able to inspire many of our youth and certainly all generations and populations within our communities? So uh, please join in as we enter into uh, the next episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. WSTU, since they probably regretted over allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. Good morning, Stuart, Florida. It is a priest and a rabbi minus a priest today as Father Anderson is uh, is taking a well-needed uh, time away. Uh, we we do look forward to, to seeing him again next week. But um, uh, today it is two rabbis kibitzing on, um, you know, challenges that are, we face within our communities and certainly around uh, around around the country. Um, and it is it, it, I, I'm really excited for this. Um, it is not often. And for those who have followed the show for now for over three years, um, it's not often that I get the opportunity to bring in guests and certainly bring in, uh, you know, friends and 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 colleagues who really have made a tremendous impact uh, in my life. Um, for those that have followed the show, you know that Father Anderson, I, I don't know where he, he, he does it, but he brings in guests, he brings in producers, he brings in writers, he brings in actors, 
I mean, it's just, it, it, it's fabulous. So I do give a, a wonderful shout out to Father Anderson uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for all that you've done to really make this program possible. Uh, and of course, for our listeners, uh, we thank you for your, your, your continued support. Uh, as, as many know, we are in 62 countries around the world. Uh, as Father Anderson will say, we are very big in Yemen, um, pretty big in, uh, in Europe and, and certainly around the world, but it is, um, it is great. It is great to be here on, uh, on yet another sunny morning here in South Florida. And it is with great, great excitement and joy that I introduce our guest this morning, uh, who comes to us, who is local, who comes to us down in Parkland. Um, and it is such a joy that I have with us Rabbi Melissa Zalkin-Stolman, and she is currently a major gifts officer for the Union for Reform Judaism. She had served previously in the congregation called Tikva in Parkland for five years as the director of lifelong learning. Prior to that position, she served at her alma mater, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, as the program coordinator for the Certificate in Jewish Education for Adolescents and Emerging Adults, which is an awesome program. Uh, as one who went through it, um, I learned a tremendous amount. And Rabbi Stolman has extensive experience working for the URJ, the Union for Reform Judaism, and its affiliates, such as our summer camps, the Association for Reform Zionists of America, ARTSA, and the North American Federation of Temple Youth. Prior to rabbinical school, and during rabbinical school, Rabbi Stolman led several birthright Israel trips, traveled with our youth in Israel as a music and worship leader. Uh, Rabbi Stolman has a master's degree in social work from Boston University, and in addition to rabbinic ordination and her master's degree in religious education from Hebrew Union College. She is a proud Union for Reform Judaism Camp Coleman alumni. Uh, uh, coming many summers to serve on faculty. Uh, she is a graduate of the University of Florida, and Rabbi Stolman is a member of the Association of Reform Jewish Educators, Women's Rabbinic Network, and the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Of course, in her free time, Rabbi Stolman enjoys singing and strumming her guitar, teaching Pilates, playing mahjong, and spending time with her husband, David, and their three amazing, amazing, amazing children uh, who are all campers at Camp Coleman. So it is with great joy and just, uh, uh, I'm just thrilled uh, to welcome to the program Rabbi Melissa Zalkin-Stolman. So good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Wow. I feel like I need to leave now. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't talk for that. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's and, and for those that don't know, which I assume is probably many, um, uh, Rabbi R Rabbi Stolman also uh, had the fortunate opportunity when working at the Union for Reform Judaism, I believe, to have my wife like as an intern or um, in some program. She, no, she worked full time. It was her first job out of college. I, I I can't say I was her favorite boss, but that's okay. We're still friends. <laughs> we worked through it. She was younger, I was younger, so, um, and we worked with college students, and it was amazing. It was an amazing time to really engage those students in Jewish life on campus. So, so just to go back a little bit on your background, um, you know, what led you, what led you to the rabbinate? What led you to, uh, you know, this, this, this joy and this ability to impart, you know, your love of Judaism to others? I mean, what was, have you always been, 
um, have you always had the thought of wanting to become a rabbi or was it something that manifested in college? How did your background, how, how did that come about? I love this question because it's so hard to answer. You know, I'm sure if people ask you, you can't say there's one moment that you're like, oh, I'm going to be a rabbi. I mean, there were so many moments along the way that I felt a helping hands kind of steering me in one direction. Um, as a child, my family moved a lot. We moved 10 times when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I used to joke that there were only a couple places that felt the same wherever I lived in the country. And one was, you know, the shopping malls that all had the same layout and the others were, were the reformed congregations. And wherever we went, it didn't matter. Within the first week, uh, our parents took us to the reformed congregation. We signed up, we got enrolled and my mother would kind of, you know, walk right in and introduce herself to the rabbi and say, you know, we're the Zulkins. We just moved here. These are my kids. They need to get involved. And I was very fortunate to sort of have these rabbis along the way who really kind of took us under their wings. And I can, I can kind of remember it starting back in like third grade, you know, really having those pivotal moments. And even after we moved, we would keep these relationships with our rabbis and one rabbi along the way said, you should send your kids to camp and I'll be there for two weeks on faculty and serving the camp. And if you can't, you know, if you send them, I'll, I'll help and I'll watch them. And, you know, this is before uh, phones and all those kinds of things. So she had to just trust that he would, and he wouldn't take any pictures. And uh, we went and that sort of opened my eyes up, especially because I had been living in smaller towns where my brother and I had been the only Jews in school. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, you can go to a whole camp with just Jewish people and do all the prayers with more kids and sing all these songs and have fun. And that, I, I think once I started going to camp, that really cemented it. And by high school, I was really involved at my synagogue here in Florida, which is where we ended up in high school in Miami. And um, by college, I kind of knew this is where I wanted to go. I, I didn't go right away. You know, I was, I was what school called like a second career student. I was in this weird, I was 32. I wasn't like right out of college, but I wasn't so far into my career either. Um, and, uh, you know, a few things also happened at summer camp. I am so lucky that when I worked in my congregation here, I have a congregant who I knew since summer camp. And one summer we were there together and she was supposed to be the song leader. And she said, you know, I didn't bring a guitar and you brought a guitar. So I'm going to tell the director to make you the song leader. And when she, I, I mean, she's really like my friend down the street is really the one who sort of pushed me into a position where I started leading services for other people and realizing, wow, I really do love this. So um, it's kind of neat that she's still in my life. Oh, well. You know, and, and for those that uh, in the Jewish world, and if you've ever been to Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion on West 4th and Broadway, uh, right in the heart of lower Manhattan, uh, if you've been there um, and you've spent any time, whether it be a union for Reform Judaism program, whether it be at HUC, uh, Rabbi Stolman is a staple. I mean, she sleeps there. She lives there. 
Uh, it is hard not to be in that institution and not hear her name or see her in any uh, way, in any capacity. I know she's done great work. But um, so, Rabbi Melissa, let, let, let's go back a little bit in terms of, you know, your your involvement when you were at uh, Coltikva in Parkland and certainly now your position as major donations chief officer for the Union for Reform Judaism, um, which is quite a tongue, tongue twister. Um, just to go back on what is this Union for Reform Judaism, just so that, uh, you know, many of our listeners not, may not be aware of the hierarchical structure or what this movement is and really what Reform Judaism is. Sure. So I'm, I'm only a major gifts officer, but I appreciate the promotion. <laughs> and I'm based in the Southeast, so I do focus on Southeast giving. The, the URJ, uh, the Union for Reform Judaism, so I'll refer to it as the URJ, is kind of like uh, an umbrella organization that helps to serve reform congregations across uh, North America and Israel, although we have um, other, other supports, to, to, to offer programming to uh, the congregations that maybe a congregation couldn't do by itself. So for example, summer camp is a very good example of that, right? Uh, you know, one congregation probably doesn't have enough uh, children and support to create a summer camp miles and miles away. But if we pool all our resources together and work with our congregants, we can make this beauty happen during the summer. Another example would be youth programming for high school students or younger students or um, adult educational programming and leadership programming. For example, because the, the pandemic has put such a strain on so many congregations, we just, for the holiday of Simchat Torah, did a big uh, event, which of course was produced online, but then we were able to send it out and share it so that congregations could share it with their congregants and not feel that pressure that they need to do everything they always typically did when uh, the members might not feel comfortable being back in their building, mm -hmm. you know? And again, when you have pooled resources and a lot of people who wanna support the bigger system, you can do really beautiful things. And I think that Simchat Torah video was a great example with the music and the, the participants and the Torah chanting and the prayers, everything, you know, it just, mm -hmm. it, it came off great. So do you, do you feel that in light of our current situation with COVID and the fact that, I, I, I mean, I, I did watch the video. I mean, I thought it was extremely well done. And the fact that, you know, if I'm in a congregation in California or in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, or even here in South Florida, um, I have access as not only a member of a congregation, but I have access to so much more that is available today that was not available a year and a half ago, two years ago. Do you think this is now the way forward for a lot of our reform congregations to be able to pool our resources and to pool our, our network um, of colleagues and communities together to be able to offer more dynamic programming um, on a virtual platform? I mean, I hope so. Think about, especially in South Florida, you know, accessibility is a big concern. Think about an older population that may not have a ride to come to the congregation or is concerned about um, their health being compromised. I mean, to be able to stream worship 
and participate in Jewish life from your own home, not because you don't want to show up, but because it's physically difficult to show up is, is amazing. And some congregations uh, had the technology installed before a pandemic ever hit. They were already streaming online. They already had all the microphones and all the different, but most didn't. And it was a scramble and it was really tough and very taxing on our colleagues because as you joke and most people joke, like you didn't go to rabbinical school to get a PhD in how to use Zoom and virtual streaming services. Like you, you know, everyone had to learn it really fast. But I think what came out of it has been very special. What What's also, I see the tension with it is that um, from a, a let's say a user perspective, a, a congregant, a current past or future, is that if, I, if I'm not home before 7 p.m. and your services started at six, it's okay, because I can log into California later and still participate in Shabbat and have a service and it's streaming on Facebook and it's free, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, for, for us who are doing the work, it's hard because you don't really know are we reaching our own congregants? Are we serving the needs of the people who are, you know, supporting us with their time and their money? Um, how many people are watching it? How many are truly logging in? Or are they just scrolling by? It's very, and, and it's very physically draining to talk to your webcam versus <laughs> a group of people that give you feedback. So, you know, I know that part of it has been really hard, but I do think it's kind of, Uh, going to be here to stay Mm -hmm. and I think the places that are doing work in collaboration will avoid the burnout of their clergy Mm -hmm. much faster than the ones who are all doing who as we say in our world who are all making Shabbos for themselves literally (laughs) you know we think about the amazing resources we could be pulling we don't always all have to do everything because we have other people who can do it and maybe we can trade off and switch around I haven't mm-hmm. seen that happen as much, but I, I do think we we might be heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny you mentioned in terms of, you know, talking to a computer screen or looking at a vacant sanctuary. Um, you know, this year was a little bit different. We did a hybrid, so we did both uh, virtual and, of course, we did welcome people back on a limited basis. But, of course, the year before, um, you know, preaching and doing entire high holy day services to a to an empty sanctuary, um, you know, and as you said, you know, the, 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 the nice thing about being in community is as a rabbi, I can, I can lead services. I can give a sermon and I can look at that one lady or that one man sitting in the congregation that, that gives you that energy, that, that drive, uh, so to speak, that just really propels you. Um, and that's why I, you know, I commissioned my, my, my wife and my kids to come to services so that at least my daughter can give me the thumbs up and say, you're doing okay, dad. Um, although this year, my, my, my 10 year old had had the opportunity to and it's good that we're recording this, but she would go like this. And I never knew what that meant. I didn't know if that was you're being too expressive. No, what I found out was you're way too loud, dad, lower the volume, um, <laughs> which is just priceless to be able to see a 10 year old kind of, uh, you know, she is my she is my rock. She comes to services every Friday. She's the one who sits there and tells me, you know, dad, I really liked your sermon or, you know, dad you really missed the mark on that one. But I think that there's, as you said, you know, the world is definitely changing. I think the Jewish world is changing. And I don't think that there is really any going back. Um, And I love what you said too, which I think is really important is, 
you know, beyond beyond the stresses and the challenges that both Judaism and certainly our movement of Reform Judaism face, which is relevancy and accessibility. And I think also given this week's Torah portion of Parshat Lech Lecha, which is the Torah portion to which God formally speaks to Abraham and says, go out of, you know, Ur, where you live in southern Iraq and go all the way to Israel, to the land of Canaan. You know, there's something there that says, well, what is the real message of the Torah portion? And for me, I understand this Torah portion as how do we make Judaism accessible? How do we make it relevant, especially in today's time? Right. And I think I think given the work that you've done, both, you know, as director of lifelong learning in in Tikva in Parkland, certainly your position now of major gifts, you know, um, for the union, you must feel in terms of I mean, that must be at the forefront of every conversation that you have is how can I appeal to others to give in the understanding that, look, how do we make Judaism relevant um, and how do we make it accessible? Yes. And it's, I mean, it's hard, you know, it's hard to, for anyone who's listening, who fundraises for an umbrella organization, and there are so many, um, not just in the Jewish world, um, you know, it's hard to ask people to give to a big system that's not really tangible, that it's hard to see the the people who are getting benefit from it. Um, It doesn't pull on your heartstrings in the same way, because, you know, it's not, it's not a major um, dire need that you see right in front of you, mm. but the people who support the work of the URJ, the people who support the work of the Religious Action Center, which is our social justice arm and in based in DC, and we're bringing that work here to Florida, they, they have, I mean, in this way, we're kind of lucky. They have a passion, they have a drive, and they have a commitment to seeing a thriving reform Judaism that lasts beyond, you know, the next year or two. Mm-hmm. And um, those people, I mean, that's what inspires me because, you know, I'm sure you can imagine, I ask lots of people for money. I'm lucky if they respond. So that's my plea to anyone I ever email. Mm. Just reply. <laughs> it's okay. You can say no, just respond. Um, but to, to see the people who say yes and this is what I'm doing at my local congregation. This is what I'm doing with you with Rack Florida. This is what I'm doing with the URJ or I'm sending my kids to summer camp. You know, the way that I focus in on this work is I, I try to meet with people and say, what, what do you care about in terms of your Judaism? You know, and let me tell you what we might be doing in that area. And then you tell me, you know, this is what I want to give. This is to the area I want to give. It's not, it's based on the donor. It's donor driven more than um, my agenda. And luckily, because I work at such a big organization, we offer amazing stuff in all different areas for all different age groups, you know? So uh, the idea is that hopefully the congregation see us working in concert with them to create the kind of community we all want to be a part of, understanding that everyone needs support. You know, we, the URJ couldn't do this without congregations. And I like to think that congregations need the URJ to offer the programming that they couldn't do by themselves. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's always interesting. Uh, and I'm always, uh, you know, just to go back a little bit on, on, you know, this week's Torah portion, 
Uh, and just for those that are not familiar, we have 54 Torah portions. We read it in the cycle. Uh, we read Mondays, uh, Monday, Thursdays, and, and Saturday. But there's, there's, you know, uh, and, and for those that do know, you know, I went to rabbinical school at Leo Beck College in London. I did four years in London, a year in Jerusalem. I finished up in New York City at HUC uh, in my final year. But my college did something really, uh, what I think is actually quite innovative. And every single year on this Torah portion of Parshat Lech Lecha, they send their students out to a whole variety of different communities within Europe, largely within the UK. And it's a way for the movements and the institution to say thank you to the congregations and to be able to say, please support us, support us. Um, and I've always oftentimes thought, you know, something that is so such an easy thing to do that has the greatest impact um, you know, and maybe it is something that North American Jewry, the reform movement could consider in terms of, look, we have student rabbis, we have rabbinical schools, we have internships, you know, maybe as a push of the movement to be able to say to the rabbis and say even to our cantors and educators on this Torah portion, please, you know, talk up or encourage others to support the union. Um, as you had said, look, the union for reform Judaism is something like 900 some odd congregations in North America. Right, we're housed under an umbrella organization of the World Union of Progressive Judaism in Jerusalem, 1,600 congregations around the world. Right, no organization and institution can just run by themselves. They need the support of our communities. Um, so I, I know we're running a little bit um, uh, um, um, out of time right now. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return back, we're going to go into, uh, as we say in Hebrew, we're going to get into the tachlis, the, 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 the meat, the, the, uh, the, the major argument here, the major understanding of, you know, what are the challenges today with major institutions? You know, it's not so much as a mom and pop operation, but this is a, this is a major worldwide uh, institution that has been around for a very long time well over 100 years, I think since like 1889, they've been around, 1875, right? There's something there that says, you know, with a well-ingrained and well-established institution, how do, we, how do we support it? How do we acknowledge it? And what are the challenges today, especially during a pandemic that really seems to not go away? How, how has this... Um, enhanced or hampered, you know, uh, uh, our ability to to give, say, perhaps with a free and open hand and, um, you know, be able to support our institutions. So we'll we'll be back in just a few. Hey everyone, it's Evan Nine, producer of A Priest and a Rabbi. Thank you for tuning in and being part of this community. We love developing new partnerships with this podcast to help further the interfaith movement. To join us, please email Father Christian at yourfavoritechristian at gmail.com. You can have an advertisement right here on this podcast, which is currently heard across the USA and in 34 other countries. Thanks for being here, and do not forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening from. Now back to A Priest and a Rabbi. Welcome back to the award-winning Priest and a Rabbi radio show with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin. 
Let's get ready for the second half of the show. Welcome back. Uh, I will say that a year and a half ago when we had Todd Newton on the, sh- on the program, for those that uh, are unaware, he is the talk show host uh, for uh, The Price is Right, the traveling show. And he, of course, did, uh, did that welcome back uh, spot. Uh, we are not award winning, although uh, we like to think that we are. We did lose uh, Florida's finest podcast, but hopefully we'll, we'll win it again next year. Uh, but again, it is, it is, it is, it is such, a, a, such a pleasure to have on the, on the program Rabbi Melissa Zalkin-Stolman, who is um, not only a friend, she is one who um, uh, really has just brought just great joy and, and, and tremendous influence both to uh, our institutions of higher learning, uh, our rabbinical seminaries at Hebrew Union College, and also now in her capacity as the um, major gifts uh, officer for the Union for Reform Judaism. So again, welcome back, uh, Rabbi Melissa. And just, um, you know, let's let's go deep into it. I mean, how over the last, you know, year and a half, almost, I mean, it's shocking now that it's almost two years, how has the pandemic, has it has it affected um, those donors or major gifts that you guys have been receiving? Has it made it more challenging? Is it, is it, you know, how has the pandemic um, challenged our institutions? Of course. I mean, I, I think every institution had challenges from local congregations in terms of memberships and uh, also their giving, they needed a lot more. We're, we're the same way. Um, obviously people uh, at the beginning when so much was unknown, the gifts didn't flow as quickly and um, people were concerned about their finances. I, I have to say I've seen over, I had started only two weeks before the pandemic began. So, I mean, it's my third time working for the Union for Reform Judaism, my second time working in this department, but the last time I had worked in this department was in 2001. So it's been a bit. Um, So my round this time has only pretty much been an experience through a pandemic. And I've seen some real beautiful moments happen. I've seen a lot of uh, foundations, Within the Jewish world, there are uh, several several foundations that have supported and lifted up institutions, not just the URJ, at a time of real need and crisis, uh, to ensure that our our people could stay employed, so that our work could keep going on, so that we could st- still offer programs and that we could create the support that we needed to create for congregations and their clergy. I mean, especially at the beginning, we spent so much time helping the trained clergy on how, and, and boards on how to do risk assessments and, um, you know, uh, setting up your virtual space. And what does that look like? How to use Zoom? I mean, real basic training on what we kind of think of as second nature now, right? Uh, Reopening plans, everything, uh, strategies to run online religious school. So we needed the resources to continue that. Uh, A big sort of tough piece of the last year and a half was not this past summer in 2021, but in 2020, when we decided not to open our sleepaway camps. And 
as you know, our sleepaway cams are pretty much like what we're known for, for the most part. And they are all around North America. You know, we have, um, and we have specialty camps and we have regional camps. So not only do we have the, the camps in different regions where all age kids go, but we have camps for, for creative arts, for science, for sports. And to not run them not only was devastating for all the children and families who really love for their kids to participate, but for the entire system. I mean, we didn't really have a time in our history where we were doing that. Yes, we also had to cancel some Israel trips, but we've had times in our history when we had to do that. What we saw were families who had already put down their deposits for camp say, you can keep it. We, we want you to keep your staff employed. We want you to keep your facilities maintained because you can't abandon a facility in the woods for a year and a half and expect it to <laughs> the toilets to flush the next year. And they all said, and everyone said, and if you can do some online programming for us, that would be awesome. And I don't know if your kids participated, but my kids did all this great online programming, not just with our own camp, Camp Coleman, but with, with everyone's camps, we just kept signing up because you know what? They didn't charge. It was beautiful. They just asked for donations and all these families said, it's okay. You can keep the deposit we already paid. Um, and this year we just came back that much stronger. And I love it, what, what, what you said, too. And even what you said a little bit earlier on, which is, you know, the fact that we can be remote wherever we are and access. I mean, my kids go to um, um, uh, uh, Owen Sang Ruby Union Institute in Oconawanamak, which I'm probably mispronouncing, in Wisconsin, um, you know, an hour and a half, you know, out of Chicago. Um, Again, I can't pronounce it. Um, it, it if, if they just wrote it in Hebrew, it'd be easier. Um, but there was something that was amazing that they had done, which I, I know that many of our other Reformed Jewish summer camps have done. They would do Havdalah um, or Shabbat evening services on Friday night or Saturday night do Havdalah. And I remember those numerous times that my kids would sign on and there would be like, there would be 900 kids on this, on this Zoom platform. And, you know, they would sing. And although it may have been brief of a half hour or an hour, it brought community together. And I remember, I remember watching it, and, you know, <clears throat> at that moment, I think my, my now 10-year-old had said, Dad, please, this is my private space. Shut the door. And as I kind of peeked through, I'm just watching her face of, you know, if there's one thing that the Union for Reform Judaism does exceptionally well, it is to inspire our children to live Jewish lives and to be able to embrace and, and, and really be proud of their sense of Judaism. And really it's only done through Jewish summer camp. Um, and our kids do it so well. Um, you know, I know my kids, uh, you know, two of my kids are, um, they've slowly now gotten over the fact that camp was canceled two years ago. Um, so, you know, they're working on it, but there's something there too that says I can watch a broadcast from Camp Coleman in Cleveland, Georgia, I can watch something of, uh, you know, Camp Eisner in, in, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I can see all of these programs and these, this, this great community together without leaving South Florida. I mean, it's, it's incredible, incredible. And they were every, I mean, it was so clever, you know, because think about the people who work at camp, they are so creative, right? They have to do new and fresh programming every single day that's exhausting you know to really um not only keep 
kids engaged, but educate them Jewishly while, while we're, we're maintaining a super fun social environment. And the, the services and the song sessions were one thing that the camps were doing, but we did like cooking and um, art classes with creative arts. And my uh, 10 year old did robotics classes and coding classes with our SciTech camp for a week. I mean, it was fantastic. And I just remember being so appreciative as was every parent. So, you know, at these, these were being offered at no cost, which helped afterwards to say, well, you know, you offered this to us, you know, here's a donation. I can't even, you know, the, the smiles and the, the happiness and the entertaining my child for an hour was like priceless. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the beginning, I don't know about yours, but in the beginning, we did log on to like a Friday night service or a half I don't remember. And my big one walked away and he was like, I can't watch. It's too painful. I'm so upset, you know, and, and my heart just like broke because I get it. You know, when you have that experience and you can't have it again and you have no control over it and you're shutting your homes, it's, it's hard. And I said, okay, you know, when you're ready by the, by the next couple of weeks, it was fine. But he's like, I'm seeing all my friends online and I should be like living in the bunks with them. So it, um, it helped to maintain that connection. It wasn't even a question the next year, you know, as soon as registration opened, I mean, I don't know if you're seeing it now, all the camps are starting to open their early bird registration for returning campers. They're, they're filling up so quickly. I mean, people can't get enough of the experiences. Um, and the parents who are choosing this and you know, you know this, and I know this, it is not inexpensive to send your child to camp. It is a huge commitment financially, as well as time. You know, this isn't like, I'm not a family that, you know, it's like, let's ship our kids off and then I'll go travel around for four weeks. I mean, I have to work and save all year long to make that happen. But Mm -hmm. when you value the experience you're giving your child, then you, you do it, you make it happen for them. So Absolutely. You also have the added bonus of being uh, a song leader and, and using guitar as my kids will, will always uh, jokingly and um, um, aggressively attack me and say, but dad, you've got two guitars sitting in your closet. Have you ever used them? I don't even know how to play it. Um, you know, I'm, I was very lucky. I was, you know, the congregation has a guitar and, you know, we do that type of stuff, but there's something there too of, you know, how the power of music and the power of community. Um, you know, as a quick aside, I was talking with our, our, our soloist last night and, you know, I was saying, you know, I really, do you know this melody to the Shema to one of our prayers? And I, you know, I was singing it and she goes, Oh, of course. And you know, in my mind, I went back to being five years old, sitting in my home synagogue and I teared up. I, I, I mean, so much so I had to almost pull over on the road because I was fearful that I was going to get into an accident because it brought me back. And I think that that's one of the greatest testaments of what, you know, Jewish summer camp and what the legacy that we leave for our children really is, is the power of connection, right? Our kids can, can, can seemingly go through, you know, Jewish summer camp. Maybe they don't access community life, but 25 years later, they step through a synagogue, a melody jogs them back all the way back to what that feeling is. Um, and I could only imagine in today's world, 
where people are overly cautious and financially it is a big challenge and a big strain, not just to send our kids to summer camp, but just to get through week to week um, and what impact that must have on our institutions who are asking for resources and the ability to sustain us and certainly to plan for the future of our children and certainly the children that have yet to be born and how we can really harness this to make it a viable and enduring gift um, for, for hopefully indefinitely. But I guess, I guess my question would be, you know, when, 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 how do you, how do you, how do you deal with it in terms of you probably make so many phone calls, so many emails, you put yourself out there, maybe, you know, one in 10 respond and maybe of those, maybe you get a donation here and there. I mean, how, how do you, how do you, how do you continue? I mean, you know, as a rabbi, you know, we know that there are many stresses that we go through and it's difficult. And we, in some way, we have to place a veil over ourselves and the community in some way to protect ourselves um, from it being too personal in some way, largely through life cycle events. I mean, how does that work for you when you, when you're appealing to those that have the ability um, and maybe a little bit more resourceful than others to be able to say, please, you know, I thank you for your gift that you've given in the past. Would you consider increasing it or would you consider just matching what you've done in the past? I mean, how does that how does that work for you both spiritually, emotionally, um, uh, you know, and institutionally? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what is I uh, because I one of my first jobs right out of grad school, I went right into development. So I kind of learned um how to sort of just get very used to asking at a pretty like younger age and um, at a federation system, a Jewish federation system where the entire organization is set up to raise money to then reallocate it back out to local resources, to local organizations and community. Um, so I, I always keep in mind two things. It doesn't mean I don't take like a deep breath before I pick up the phone. I always do. One is I am not asking for me. This is not please give, you know, the Stolman family your resources. This is please give it to a system that could use it. Um, two is I want to get to know the people. Obviously, I don't want to just keep asking because we have a lot of volunteer work sometimes that needs to get done. We need people on committees. We are trying to push things through congregations. So, you know, while I'm always appreciative to just say, for someone to say, here, here's $5,000 and I'll see you in a year, or I'll, I'll talk to you in a year. I'm also very appreciative when I see them in an upcoming, in a Zoom call where we're talking about something important. Mm. Um, I don't take it personally. I don't, I mean, I get ignored a lot, but if I get, I don't get a lot of no's. I might get a not that much money or not right now, um, but it doesn't mean I'm ever going to stop asking because I am so passionate about what I do. And it's not, I'm not passionate about being a fundraiser per se, but I am passionate about being a rabbi. I'm passionate about the reformed Jewish community. I'm a passionate about our movement. Everything in my whole life, in my whole career has been about the same thing. And while I've been a rabbi at a congregation at times or an educator, it is all the same. It is to the same mission and the same person, purpose, which is educating and connecting people to a Jewish life they might want to live. Hmm. And I don't, I never 
went to school to be a pulpit rabbi who who stood on the bima or on the the pulpit to uh, give sermons. That was not what I wanted to do with my rabbinate. I wanted to lead in a different way through education and through engagement. So whether I do that as a fundraiser, as an educator, at the movement, at a congregation, I feel like I am still moving towards the purpose that I've chosen for myself, you know, ideally with, um, with God being involved and at the center. And um, that's, that's how it's okay to, it doesn't mean that I don't get frustrated, of course. Mm-hmm. And I also work for an amazing system with rabbis who are so brilliant. I can't, I, I mean, I get to talk to these people every single day. And every day I'm still like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm always learning from my mentors and the leaders of the movement, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, Rabbi Jonah Pesner. So sometimes I'm just a connector or I'm the person working behind the scenes, but someone else is making that ask. And that's okay too. I don't, we, what's so beautiful about the URJ and like the internal working is this isn't like, oh, you get credit for this one and you get credit for this one. It's not what this is about. This is about the system all working together in partnership to make sure that we get the resources that we need. And I love that because that relieves a little bit of pressure, but it also gives me access to people to support the work. Oh, absolutely. And I love what you said too, is that it's a collaborative effort, right? A successful donation is not a, a, a win for, you know, Rabbi Stolman here. It is a win for the union, right? A great summer camp program, at Camp Coleman is a successful program for Osrui and all of our Jewish summer camps around the country. Um, you know, and, and, and I think sometimes, even congregationally, sometimes we, we, we sometimes lose or forget uh, the bigger picture, right, for many of our sisterhoods or brotherhoods or, or auxiliaries, right? A successful program for an early childhood learning center is a successful program for the temple. Um, you know, that it's so many, so many inspiring minds coming together to make this possible. Um, and, 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 and I love what you said in terms of trying to break out the union in terms of its multi, multifaceted different departments and different organizations that form one unit. Because um, I think many are unaware of, you know, the intricacies of such a large movement. Um, you know, again, for over 900 congregations around North America, and some of them being massive, um, and of course, you know, the, 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 the misnomer, I think it's something like, I mean, you would know better than I, but something like 80% of reform synagogues around the country are under 200 families. Well, the other 20% that, I mean, I grew up in a congregation of two, 3,000 families, it was huge. Um, but that's not the norm, right? I, I, I think the general, you know, for the general synagogue around is that we are, you know, most synagogues teeter between the small to medium-sized congregations that require the support. We need the help. Um, you know, we're not, when I was, when I, when I, when I served in New York, um, they had always said, but Rabbi, we're not in Manhattan. And of course, when I moved down here, I thought the argument would be we're not Miami, but of course um, the argument is we are not Boca. But a part of me says, it doesn't matter if we're Boca, if we're Jacksonville, if we're Tampa, if we're Miami, it doesn't matter. Um, we all serve for the same purpose, which is to empower and instill a love of Judaism in a way that is inspiring, in a way that is engaging. So, you know, um, Rabbi Melissa, what do you see as the future? Um, The future for the union, 
the future for Jewish institutions? Um, you know, how, where do you see our future um, as a, a progressive movement? Where do you see the future? I don't know. I think my vision changed a little bit when the pandemic hit. I mean, I live in a kind of community, I probably very similar to where you are, right? It's very young. I worked at a congregation that actually was skewed very, very young. We had a lot of younger families, new families. The, um, the town I'm in is still building homes, you know, and we are, uh, you know, there's a generation that is not used to sort of institutional membership, for lack of a better way to put it. And I don't think it's just the word because people still keep gym memberships, for example, um, but they just, they, it's hard to demonstrate the value when you don't have this urgent need right in front of you. So maybe the urgent need is like a preschool, but then when the preschool's age is over, you know, you're, you think, oh, I'm done paying. I'm going to public school and I'll come back in third grade if I want my child to become bar bar mitzvah and I'll pay and, you know, they'll go third through seventh and then I'll bump back out. And it, I, I think our institutions and as well as the URJ as a collective need to really spend some time to think about, okay, now in this new reality of a virtual space, how do we engage families who want to be engaged? And maybe I notice a lot of congregations spend time spinning wheels thinking about how do we engage unengaged families, but they may not want to be engaged. And I would, I would say, let that piece go, offer high quality programming in case they want to come back. But there is certainly another subset of the population that do want to be engaged. They just aren't really sure what that looks like and where it needs to be and how do we bring it to them. Mm. And, you know, I said for a long time, like, oh, where I am, everything's a community, right? A gated community with clubhouses. You know, maybe maybe everything doesn't need to take place in a building. Maybe we go to that clubhouse and we light those Hanukkah candles, which we used to do, or we run an art program in a local art studio, or we go to the Lowe's and all that kind of thing um, and build a sukkah at Lowe's or Home Depot, you know, that we have to be creative because we have to go where people are because they don't nest, the, the building's scary. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they don't know what's in there. They don't know what you offer. And um, in in that way, that's what I see as us really needing to spend some time to think about to determine what the future looks like. Because now that I'm not in one congregation, but I help a lot, but I'm also still a member of my community, you know, people come up and ask, they know I'm a rabbi, you know, they'll ask me their Jewish questions, they'll ask me things. And I, I think to myself, like, there's a congregation down the road, you can ask, you know, you can call I could give you 15 people to call, but they saw me. So they'll ask me, you know, and I'm happy to do that answering. But I think the visibility and the being open and available and approachable is really what matters. And we have to think about ways to do that institutionally. Absolutely. You know, and I think just to, just to follow up on what you were saying, look, I think, you know, synagogue and congregational life today is definitely different than it was 30 years ago. I mean, look, we are blessed and certainly, um, um, you know, super grateful of where we live. I mean, we start, we do eight or some odd beach Shabbats a year. I mean, we're going to start doing our beach Shabbats in two weeks at Stewart Beach, five o'clock, 
October 28th, uh, 29th, you know, where we're going to be doing these. And, and you know, that, that that wasn't even on people's radar 30 years ago. I mean, it would, you pray outside. I mean, what's the message? Right. I mean, when I was in New York, we did Shabbat on the slopes. We spent the day skiing. Um, you know, what was it really about? It wasn't about the exercise or the activity. It was about the fact that I can pray anywhere and everywhere. It doesn't have to be in the four walls of a sanctuary with an ark. It can be everywhere. Um, and I think that that is really, you know, the beauty of what our movement really does impress upon us in terms of think outside the box, do things that maybe get out of your comfort zone. Um, and I think the pandemic has really, at least for me personally, has challenged me in ways that um, I would not have been challenged in the past. And I had to stretch and I had to do things that, at least for me, were, were out of my comfort zone. Um, and you know what? It was successful. And for those that were not as successful, we learned from it. Um, and I think even with our institutions of trying to support them as best we can. And, you know, if you do have the ability, uh, you know, check out the Union for Reform Judaism. Go to URJ.org. Check out our, uh, the programs. Check out, um, you know, all the great work that, you know, synagogues and and this country and, and beyond of, of North America are doing to ensure stability and continuity of reformed Jewish life uh, here in America and, and beyond. So, uh, Rabbi Melissa, if people wanted to learn more about you and, uh, you know, the work that you do, is there, a, is, there a, uh, is there a place that they can go to to learn more about the union or, or for yourself? Sure. I would say anyone can go to URJ.org. That is the best place or reformjudaism.org. Not only does it talk about actual programming, but it talks about how to celebrate um, these websites, have the prayers if you want to start doing uh, holiday celebrations or Shabbat worship at, you know, at home, even just lighting candles and um, blessing the wine and the challah for Shabbat. So there are great resources online, which I'm, I'm sure people are used to looking for. And um, I'm just, I just want to thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I was a little nervous. I haven't done a radio show before. So I, I want to thank everyone involved for making this happen. Absolutely. Um, so as we are running out of time, I just want to take uh, the opportunity. Um, I feel like I can, I can uh, most certainly speak for uh, Father Anderson. Um, um, where we say thank you. Um, you know, we've been doing this a long time. It is something that we feel very uh, strong and very, we're very proud of the guests that we bring in. And especially to be able to learn a little bit more about, you know, a centralized movement, um, like the reform movement here in America, uh, North America and beyond, and, and really having such an impactful and just such a beautiful guest to join us. Melissa, thank you for your insight, for your perspective, and, and certainly for your, for the hope, for the hope for the future for our children and certainly um, the next generation. So I thank you and keep tuning in uh, to A Priest and a Rabbi. We will see you next week.